When the Beatles walked into EMI Studios in early 1966, they weren't just the biggest musical artists in the world. They were really the biggest anything in the world. But as they were about to record their seventh album, they made the important decision, no more touring. So this album, they were going to utilize the studio as their instrument. And it would not only change things for the Beatles, it would change things for any artist that ever walked into a studio thereafter. This is the Reactions to the Classics Music Podcast Relistenables Revolver. Welcome to the Reactions of the Classics Music Podcast. I am your host, Sean Holmes, joined as always by my son, Trey. How are you doing today, Trey? I'm doing fantastic, especially because we're about to talk about one of my favorite records of all time. Yes, sir. The Beatles Revolver. It's our re-listenable series. If you've never listened to one of these, quick kind of overview. We're going to talk about this iconic album, a lot of cool stuff about it, talk about all the tracks on it, and then uh, answer a few questions at the end about what's held up best, what hasn't, biggest what-ifs, all kinds of fun stuff like that. But as you mentioned, Trey, this is one of your favorite albums of all time. It is one of my favorite albums of all time. I'll give away at the end where it ranks for me. But we know a lot about this particular album. About a year ago on our YouTube channel, we started walking through the Beatles discography. We reviewed every single album, track by track, in their entire discography, along with Anthology. So we have a very good handle on not only this album itself, but where it fits into the Beatles canon. Yeah, because this is a kind of smack dab in the middle of their output, and it is a really good, I think, measuring point. I mean, some say Rubber Soul, the album that came out before this, and uh, yeah, that has some merit, but this is where I think they really just uh, kind of expanded into directions that would further them through the next couple years and uh, really set them as the band of the time. Of the time, and in my book, all time, but I digress and get ahead of myself here. This album was released on August 5th, 1966. It's the seventh of 12 UK albums. So as you said, smack dab in the middle. It's got 14 songs, but it's only 34 minutes. That's a fantastic thing that we'll talk about later. It's ranked number three on the Rolling Stones list of 500 greatest albums of all time. Trey, they almost got that right. Yeah, I know. I uh, I, I would have had it just a couple spots ahead, maybe. You know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I might have as well. A future re-listenable we're doing, Sgt. Pepper's, happened to come in at that number one spot. Just two tracks on this album are longer than three minutes, and that's Love You Too at 301 and I'm Only Sleeping at 302. And I think that helps so much on this just boom rocket ship ride mm -hmm. they take you right 14 tracks yeah. but man you are flying because uh, a lot of the tracks really just uh, fade out as the music is still going and the lyrics are still uh, going it makes it seem like the music never outstays its welcome yeah very good point they spent over 220 hours recording Revolver. That excludes the mixing sessions. We're going to talk quite a bit about that in a few minutes. It compares with less than 80 hours for Rubber Soul. So, boy, they're ramping it up almost three times as much time. And the album's title, like that of Rubber Soul, is a pun, of course, referring to both a kind of handgun and the revolving motion of a record as it plays on a turntable. They had originally wanted to call the album Abracadabra until they discovered that another band had already used it, and 
I think that's a very good thing. Revolver just rolls off the tongue, I think, a little better than Abracadabra, you know. But uh, I, I, I do love the name. I really enjoy the cover, which, uh, you know, we'll get to here in a little bit as well. Just everything about it just encompasses some of the uh, psychedelic, I think, and just out there nature of a lot of the tunes on this record. Now, we're going to spend quite a bit of time on the background and on the different studio techniques and legacy because this album, almost more than any that we'll do in this series, just is so iconic for all the things and innovations that it brought about. So the way we come into this, in December of 65, the Rubber Soul album that you mentioned earlier, Trey, was released a wide critical acclaim. According to author David Howard, the limits of pop music, quote, had been raised into the stratosphere by the release of Rubber Soul, resulting in a shift in focus away from singles to creating albums of consistently high quality because before this, you know, it was all about releasing good singles and you just kind of throw the albums in there. It wasn't really Mm -hmm. the case for the Beatles, but for most artists at this time, Elvis Presley being a great example, most of the albums are not that fantastic. It's all about getting good singles. The singles were were key, man. Exactly. But Rubber Soul showed you could go a different direction with that. Mm -hmm. Now, the group's manager, Brian Epstein, had intended that 1966 would follow the pattern they'd been doing the previous two years, a pattern trade that was just killer. Oh, yeah. So Epstein wanted them to release a film on also having an accompanying album with it. So, of course, we had that with A Hard Day's Night as well as Help. But uh, the Beatles just kind of threw around their cloud and wait and said, nah, Brian, we ain't going to do that. We're actually going to take three months uh, free of professional engagements, which had to have been the most time they had uh, really in their entire career. Yeah, because not only were we going to do the film and the album, but the most important part they were going to do is the concert tour Mm -hmm. during the summer months. And so they nixed that for the time being. Yeah, and uh, this was the longest period that they had off since 1962. It kind of defied that almost outdated obviously at this point notion that pop acts should almost be permanently working and always be doing something uh, nowadays obviously artists and bands will take many many years a lot of the times between uh, album releases um, but back in the 60s Groups are coming out a lot of times with multiple albums in a calendar year. So it uh, just kind of goes to, to show the differences that the music industry had back then. And um, really how, again, how impressive the Beatles were coming out with so much quality content. Yeah, because they basically had a three and a half year span. And you might be listening to this going, well, I mean, they worked straight for three and a half years. What's the big deal? Well, I mean, the big deal was they put out six albums and just, I mean, they just worked bands to death back then. So... Uh, they were definitely burnt out. So now they have an unprecedented amount of time to prepare for this new album because a lot of their other albums, they would be touring and they'd run in and record a few tracks and they go back out on tour. And the author, Nicholas Schaffner, uh, in the Beatles Forever book, he cites 1966 as the start of the band's psychedelic period and adds, quote, that adjective implies not only the influence of certain mind-altering chemicals, we'll get to that, but also the freewheeling spectrum of wide-ranging colors and their new music seem to evoke. Trey, this is where they really get into the drug use. John and George's continued experimentation with LSD since the spring of 65 brought huge influence to Revolver. Yeah, and obviously as we look at the time period of the world at this time, hippie culture is kind of starting to ramp up a little bit, obviously not at its peak yet, but, um, you know, experimenting with 
weed, with LSD, with these uh, drugs that kind of went against the squeaky clean image that pops into your mind when you think of the uh, mop top Beatles. Yeah, exactly. Definitely uh, an interesting part in their career. And uh, through these LSD-like experiences, John and George started to develop a fascination in particular with Eastern philosophical concepts, particularly regarding the nature of human existence. Which George would have that continued fascination until the day he left this earth. Yeah, exactly. It is interesting how that had such a big impact on him. Obviously, uh, the group going to India just a couple years after this and uh, sparking um, a bunch of uh, inspiration for stuff for the White Album in particular. But uh, Paul never, uh, he refused to try LSD. Ringo was like, sure, let me try. Peer pressure, even (laughs) in the Beatles, man, that peer pressure worked. But yeah, Paul didn't do it. Instead, he drew his inspiration from the intellectual stimulation he experienced among London's art scene, particularly its thriving avant-garde community. Now, eventually McCartney does some drugs, but he also Mm -hmm. then in turn pulls John, especially into the avant-garde community. And, you know, John obviously goes on to do a lot of avant-garde stuff, mainly from Yoko's influence, but Paul's the one that drew him into that. A lot of people don't know that. We have another little interesting tidbit there. While arranging dates for the band's world tour, Epstein agreed to a proposal by journalist Maureen Cleave for the Beatles to be interviewed separately for a series of articles that would explore each of their personalities and lifestyle beyond their identity as a Beatle. That really hadn't happened before, Trey, not just with the Beatles, but with music groups in general. Uh, the record companies and their managers did not like to present them in any sort of singular manner because they didn't want anybody to get any ideas that maybe I'd be better off on my own to break the group up. Yeah, and it's interesting because they actually published these in weekly installments in the London's Evening Standard throughout March of 66, and it started to reflect the transformation that the uh, guys were going through during the uh, group's month of inactivity. And uh, of the two principal songwriters, Clee found Lennon to be a bit more intuitive, lazy at times, and overall dissatisfied <laughs> with uh, fame. While McCartney had that confidence that we know Paul has, a hunger for knowledge, and uh, ready to stretch his creative legs. Now, that was 1966, so yeah. and not much <laughs> changed over the, over the next four years with that. No, it is interesting to really go back, and maybe we can pinpoint this as kind of the the time that uh, that their personalities really got set for the following years. Um, And it was during this time where Lennon had been, uh, of course, the Beatles' dominant creative force before Revolver. Now, Revolver's kind of the record in my uh, mind, and a little bit on Rubber Soul, but I I still think John was ahead of him there, but where Paul and John are really on equal playing fields uh, for Revolver. And with Harrison uh, continued to develop as well with his interest in music and, of course, the culture of India, the sitar, and that would obviously influence his music both uh, in the Beatles and later on in his solo career. And Revolver is widely viewed as the album on which Harrison came of age as a songwriter, and I think the critics are right in their estimation there. Yeah, I agree with that, absolutely. We're going to talk a little bit about the recording history, not much, and then we're going to get into the very fascinating studio innovations. In the recording history, the Beatles had hoped to work in a more modern facility than EMI's London Studios, at Abbey Road, and were impressed with the sounds on records created at Stack Studio in Memphis, which, by the way, Trey, is where Elvis will go in 1969 and make his classic Elvis in Memphis. In March of 66, Epstein investigated the possibility of their recording the new album at Stax, 
where according to a letter written by Harrison two months later, they intended to work with producer Jim Stewart. The idea was abandoned after locals began descending on the Stacks building. Already, they weren't there. It was just a rumor they were going to be there. As were alternative plans to use either Atlantic Studios in New York or Motown in Detroit. So they entered Abbey Road with Martin again serving as producer. So a couple things here. First off, what if they would have went to Stax or to Atlantic or to Motown, then the iconic Abbey Road that it's known for now, they might not have ever went back there. Yeah, there really does have to be one of the biggest what-ifs that this record has. Um, I think it would have been interesting to see the reaction, and we obviously got a taste with it if locals were already uh, <laughs> storming in on Stack Studio without them even being there. That's insane, What man. would it have been like if they actually were in America recording a record? I think Madness would have been sued. It just would have been a real interesting uh, kind of point in their history yeah, if they I- recorded a record here in the States. I think it would have been a disaster, and here's why. It's the other little hidden sentence in there. The group intended to work with producer Jim Stewart. Mm -hmm. So if we cut out the fifth Beatle, George Martin, we also cut out Jeff Emmerich, and I'm about to talk about how important he was as well. And how do all these studio innovations happen? I mean, maybe they do, but no one could work with the Beatles like George could. He knew them before they were the Beatles, so they would still always listen to George. So that part was crazy to me. The other problem you have, and we have this problem all the time, uh, this is the last time we're going to have this problem, but the difference in the UK and the US releases. Mm-hmm. So in May of 66, Epstein responded to a request from Capitol Records, EMI's North American counterpart, to supply three new songs for an upcoming US release titled Yesterday and Today. Issued in June, it combined tracks that Capitol had omitted from the Beatles' previous US releases with songs that the band had originally issued on non-album singles. So they just threw a bunch of stuff together from the completed six recordings for Revolver at the time. Martin selected Lennon-written songs since the sessions had favored his compositions thus far. And then, of course, Paul takes over in a major way. So we have Dr. Robert, I'm Only Sleeping, and Your Bird Can Sing. Thus, the U.S. version of Revolver did not have these songs and only had 11 tracks instead of the 14 in the U.K., or AKA, as I like to call it, Trey, the U.S. version is ruined. Yeah, I, I'm with you there, man. I'm really glad after this where both the U.K. and the U.S. were on the same playing field. I know a lot of our uh, listeners and viewers of our YouTube channel um, who grew up in the States as they were coming out I do prefer the American versions, which I understand why. That's the versions that they grew up on. Yeah, but, yeah exactly. Uh, we get a lot of pushback <laughs> on that. But the thing to keep in mind is what did the artist want? How did the artist craft their material? And the way they crafted it is the way it was released in the UK, period. And so that's the way it should have been. Now we're going to get into a quick little overview on the studio innovations because this is what makes this album stand out in music history. Oh, yeah. There's so much stuff here that even holds up to this day all this time later. Jeff Emmerich had a a couple wise words to say. Um, He said that Revolver very rapidly became the album where the Beatles would say, okay, that sounds great. Now let's play the recording backwards or speed it up or slow it down. They tried everything backwards just to see what things sounded like. Yeah, and then a key production technique they used was automatic double tracking. ADT will bring it up all the time on Beatles stuff from here on in. It's a huge thing in Peppers as well, which EMI technical engineer Ken Townsend invented in April. So once again, 
if they're at Stack Studios. They not only don't have Martin, they don't have Emmerich, and they don't have Ken Townsend, mm-hmm. and ADT doesn't exist at this time. This technique is really easy. It employs two link tape recorders to automatically create a doubled vocal track. The standard method had been to double the vocal by singing the same piece twice onto a multi-track tape, a task Lennon particularly disliked because you had to sing it exactly the same, the same inflections, the same oh, everything. It would be ridiculous. Yeah. It'd be like us having to record this podcast. You know, <laughs> exactly. A the section same. of it. Okay, better. Oh, my voice is the same here, not getting loud here, you know, different types of things. So I don't know how they did that. I don't know how they did it either. The Beatles were not only delighted with this invention and used it extensively on Revolver, but ADT soon became a standard pop production technique and led to related developments such as the artificial chorus effect, which Queen loved greatly as we get into the mid-70s. The band's most experimental work during the sessions, and I would say period, was on the first song they attempted, Tomorrow Never Knows. It's the last song in the album, first song they attempted. Went and sang his vocal for the song through the twin revolving speakers inside a Wesley cabinet, which was designed for use with a Hammond organ. And we're going to get into that more on the song. Much of the backing track for the song consists of a series of prepared tape loops, an idea that originated from McCartney. And they actually each prepared loops at home, and a selection of those sounds were then added to the backing of Tomorrow Never Knows. So even though, of course, Paul's not singing on Tomorrow Never Knows, he uh, did have his fingerprints on the track itself, um, which I, I think maybe sometimes gets forgotten. We also had reverse tape sounds on Rain, which was the B-side to the single Day Tripper that were recorded during these sessions. We'll talk about a great uh, single release there. And it, that marked the first pop release to use uh, the technique of reverse tape sounds. We also have the backwards or back mask guitar solo on I'm Only Sleeping, which was also pretty unprecedented in pop music. And Harrison deliberately composed and recorded his guitar parts with a view to how the notes would sound when the tape direction was corrected. Now, I don't, I don't even know talk how, about a genius right there. Yeah, how do you even do that? And then their interest in tones that resulted from that varying tape speed or vera speeding, as it became known, extended to recording a basic track at a faster tempo than they intended the song to sound on disc. During the sessions, Emmerich recorded McCartney's bass guitar amplifier via a loudspeaker, which Townsend had reconfigured to serve as a microphone in order to give the bass more prominence than on previous Beatles releases. Emmerich also ensured a greater presence for Ringo's bass drum by inserting an item of clothing inside the structure to dampen the sound and then moving the mic to just three inches from the drum head and compressing the signal through a Fairchild limiter. So despite EMI Studios obviously being technically inferior, there's a reason why they wanted to come to the States, Star's drumming on the album soon led to the studios in the States being torn apart and put back together again as those engineers sought to replicate the innovative sounds achieved by the Beatles which was simply shoving some clothes in there and moving a mic close. Yeah, absolutely. For as crazy as some of these innovations were, you then come with just some kind of intuitiveness like that, where it's like, you know what, let's just try this and see how it sounds. And it, a lot of times works. Sometimes you just got to throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks, so to speak. So uh, lots of great innovations there, and we'll continue to uh, highlight those as we go into uh, the track by track here in a few. But I want to move now to the artwork, which was created by Klaus Vorman, uh, a guy that was a Beatles friend from of old and pops up 
uh, as you research the Beatles all throughout their career. Yeah, back in Hamburg, man. Yeah, exactly. And uh, his artwork was part line drawing and part collage using photographs, mostly taken over 64 and 65. And then he placed the photos within the tangle of hair that connects all four of the faces. His aim was to reflect the radical departure and sound represented, particularly from Tomorrow Never Knows. And his choice of black and white on the cover was in deliberate defiance of the preference for vivid color at this time. Obviously, this is a very stark contrast yeah, to Sergeant Pepper's, their next record which is just so vibrant yeah. and hops off the page. This has that black and white, uh, almost dreariness, and it's very psychedelic in kind of its presentation, which obviously fits the music um, very well. And when Vorman submitted his work to the Beatles, Epstein wept overjoyed that Claus had managed to capture the experimental <laughs> tone of the Beatles' new music, and uh, it actually won uh, the Grammy for Best Album Cover. Now, on the release of the album, McCartney had this to say in June of 66. We'll lose some fans with the new album, but we'll also gain some. The fans we'll probably lose will be the ones who like the things about us that we never mm-hmm. liked anyway. Wow. What a quote, man. And I think that really highlights the fact that I believe the the lads had reached a point where they wanted to make music for themselves and really uh, go with what they wanted as opposed to let me just go with what the crowd wants to appease the masses. And that's a tough line, I imagine, especially being the biggest band in the world, to walk where you put out stuff you know your fans are still going to like while also wanting to branch out and uh, uh, try to stretch yourself artistically. Yeah, it's the old, if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So it has to be scary to step out. Maybe not as scary for them as probably the record company going, what are you doing? But <laughs> referencing Paul's comment, Revolver marked the start of a change in the Beatles' core audience as their young female-dominated fan base that we see in just the concerts and all the crazy Beatlemania stuff gave way to a following that increasingly comprised more serious-minded male listeners like ourselves, Trey. (laughs) And pretty much before this release, the Beatles were squeaky clean. They were Teflon, man, nothing stuck to them. But we had some public relations problems that coincided with the release of this, the combination of which led to their decision to retire from touring following the end of their North American tour in August. In the U.S., the album's release was a secondary event to the famous controversy surrounding the recent publication there of Lennon's interview in which he had remarked that the Beatles had become, quote, more popular than Jesus. I just got to say real quick, Trey, you and I are, are definitely devout or committed or big time, whatever word you want to use, Christians. And I will tell you what, the, the conservative Christian world took that comment, more popular than Jesus, and went crazy. I think, as a Christian sitting here in 2020, John was exactly right what he was trying to get across. He didn't say they were greater than Jesus. If you watch old stuff, go watch the movie Eight Days a Week that Ron Howard put out on their touring days. It is absolutely insanity. These guys are mobbed everywhere they go. They were met in Australia with 400,000 people at the airport that lined the streets when they were driving. I mean, this stuff is insane. And that's all John was trying to say. Yeah, it's one of those things where the media or somebody took something, I think, a little out of context and ran with it. I'm glad that doesn't ever happen today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, not not in our uh, social media Uh. world. But that also followed uh, the unfavorable reaction to the yesterday <laughs> and today that I was talking about earlier. It had a butcher sleeve. The, the cover of it was violent. So they took that away from the, the press, the radio stations, and retail outlets. Yeah, if you, you have one of those.
those with the uh, the babies all butchered up. Uh, you, you got a nice uh, nice little cache there. Yeah, so we got the the baby butchered up, and now we got John saying that they are uh, they're more popular than Jesus. So as a result, the press conferences during the tour. Now they didn't play any of the Revolver songs on the tour, but Revolver had been released. They focused on religious matters rather than the band's new music. In addition, the group were very vocal in their opposition to the Vietnam War, which in 1966 in America didn't go over well. It was fine later on, but it didn't go over well there, and it really redefined their public image in the U.S. So they got all those challenges. So it took away, I think, from how great this album was in America Mm. because everybody's focused on all this other stuff. And that uh, really actually impacted some of the uh, release of the music in the U.S., which we'll get to here in a second. Um, as we move now to the commercial performance of this record and we'll go back over the other side of the pond to the UK where Eleanor Rigby was the favorite side and it actually was the best-selling single of 1966 topping the chart for four weeks on the UK albums chart Revolver entered at number one and stayed there for seven weeks during a 34-week run in the top 40 not bad if I uh, do say so myself not especially during this time when the album world was so highly competitive and uh, for as great as this album is it uh, didn't didn't have enough juice to take uh, out the sound of music <laughs> soundtrack back uh, but hey second selling out a highest album of uh, 66 not too bad and in the enemy readers poll for 66 revolver and pet sounds were jointly recognized as those the magazine's album of the year 66 what a fantastic year of music mm-hmm. you also have dylan's blonde on blonde and uh, many other classics of no course joke man now we're going to go back over to america where capital were very wary of the religious references in eleanor rigby i guess they were thinking we don't want anything (laughs) else and instead pushed yellow submarine over eleanor rigby on that single it peaked at two on the billboard hot 100 making it the first designated beatles single since 1963 not to top that chart so if you had people talk, oh, they're not number one anymore. <laughs> on the Billboard album chart, Revolver hit number one in September, staying there for six weeks, a week after the end of yesterday and today's five-week run at the top. Revolver was nominated for Grammy for Album of the Year. While commercially successful, Revolver was only their 10th best-selling album when they broke up in 1970 in the States. So that was pretty wild. Yeah, and that really uh, highlighted a little bit of the critical reception of this record. Yeah, definitely a dichotomy between the yeah, two sides of the pond. in the U.S., due to all the controversies that we just talked about, there wasn't a, a lot of favorable press, uh, especially compared to the band's previous releases, whereas in Britain, Revolver was highly, highly uh, favored and had a lot of positive reception. So just goes to show you how um, some of the circumstances behind that uh, affected how people viewed this record, depending yeah, exactly. on what side of the, the pond you were on. They went in there with those biases already. Now. Oh, absolutely. Now, now, things have changed in a retrospective manner because Revolver's been recognized as having inspired new subgenres of music, anticipating electronica, punk rock, baroque rock, world music, among other styles. According to Rolling Stone magazine, the album, quote, signaled that in popular music, anything, any theme, any musical idea could now be realized, and that magazine attributes the development of the Los Angeles and San Francisco music scenes, including subsequent releases by the Beach Boys, Love, 
and the Grateful Dead to the influence of Revolver, mm. particularly She Said, She Said, which wait till we get into the story of that. And many have said Revolver opened the doors to psychedelic rock or acid rock, while the primitive means by which it was recorded on that four-track equipment inspired the work that artists such as Pink Floyd, Genesis, Yes, and ELO, we've covered all those guys on our, <laughs> on our YouTube channel, were able to achieve with advances in studio technology. So we're not saying, and Rolling Stones are saying they're the first ones to do all these but they are the big ones, right? Mm-hmm. They're the ones that everybody's viewing. And whereas Sgt. Pepper has long been identified as the Beatles' greatest album, which we'll get into that on this and on the re-listenable for that album, since the 2000s Revolver has often surpassed it in lists of the group's best work. As the album's 1987 CD release with the full complement of Lennon compositions as marking the start of a process where Revolver steadily climbed in public estimation, to become recognized as the Beatles' finest work. The reason why that 1987 CD is important, Trey, is because in the United States, there was no way to get this album mm-hmm. in its proper form until that CD was released. Yeah, absolutely. And critics further noted that Revolver found the Beatles, quote, at the peak of their powers, competing with one another because nobody else could touch them. Others said it was the best album the Beatles ever made, which means the best album by anybody. Boy, that's a great statement right there. Um, uh, others argue, and I'm inclined to agree yes. with this, that it showed the four band members peaking at the exact same time and deeming it to be the best of the bunch, the letter that went unanswered. What a great quote there. Mm, So that's kind of what the critics were saying at this time. I think I've noticed where uh, if you ask people that were around during Beatlemania and grew up as these albums came out, they're more inclined to say that Sgt. Pepper is maybe their favorite. Where if you ask people my age and your age that were, you know, a generation or two, uh, after all this happened, they're more likely to point a Revolver, or Abbey Road, or the White Album as their favorite. So I, I think Peppers, and not to step on our re-listenable of Peppers, but uh, it was just such a pop culture phenomenon yes. that it, it probably holds a bigger importance in one's life if you were actually there in lifetime, which you know we unfortunately weren't. All right, well, let's jump into the album itself. It starts off, Trey, with a Harrison track, which right away, you know, things are different because they would have never started off with the George track before. We have a song that's played in the States here every April. <laughs> Taxman. Yeah, I really enjoy the fact that we started with a Harrison song. It really took a leap, I think, on Rubber Soul. And then on this record himself, he really starts to show some of those Indian influences and also some of his maturation as a songwriter. And the song starts off with that spoken count in sort of uh, out of tempo with the performance that follows, which I always enjoy the one, two, three. I do too. Yeah, it's credited with establishing the new studio aesthetic of Revolver. It's the first thing you hear. But here's what I didn't come across when we actually reviewed this on our YouTube channel. It was actually recorded a month after the song, so it wasn't genuine to the recording of the song. So that made me sad, Trey. I know, a little uh, little bit behind the curtain stuff there. His uh, his vocals were treated with it ADT. That's going to be coming up a lot. That, a lot of heavy compression, you can tell. Yeah, and it's one of the first Beatles songs to really tackle some topical concerns at the time, especially, obviously, it's called Tax Man. The progressive tax in the UK, as their earnings place them in that top tax bracket where they were um, liable to the 95% super yeah, yeah, tax. Let's, let's jump in on that. You heard that right if you're listening to this and you're in the States. 95% of their income 
was subject to taxation. They got to keep 5%. You know, you got Zap. You got the Rolling Stones ended up going to France. Mm-hmm. All these groups that are, that are from the UK, they all leave in the 60s and early 70s because, man, can you imagine getting taxed <laughs> a 95%? Yeah. A people in the U.S. here would uh, be losing their minds. Yeah, we would have, we'd have a revolt. <laughs> now, Paul played the guitar solo on tax, man. A lot of people who are just casual listeners don't realize that. You would think it would be, it would be George, but it was not. Uh, a lot of people say that that guitar solo is like nothing the Beatles or really almost anyone had done prior to the time. Emmerich said there was a bit of tension on that session because George had a great deal of trouble playing the solo. In fact, he couldn't even do a proper job of it when we slowed the tape down to half speed. After a couple hours of watching him struggle, both Paul and George Martin started becoming quite frustrated. This was, after all, a Harrison song and therefore not something anyone was prepared to spend a whole lot of time on. Enter then McCartney, who played one of the decade's finest solos. There's a lot said in that little comment by Emmerich, mm-hmm. right? First of all, you learn that George had to work really, really hard to turn himself into a world-class guitarist, but he did do that. But it didn't come easy for him. It just gives me more respect for him. And that quote of, this was, after all, Harrison's song, and therefore not something anyone was prepared to spend a whole lot of time on, they dismissed George in such a way. He was such an afterthought. And then when George excels later on and becomes on an equal level with him, they didn't change that mentality towards him and, and kind of you get a good glimpse into that right here. Absolutely. And I, I think it is one of Paul's finest works here and the, the way him and George were able to even put that aside, kind of blend together. It came out with one of the best openers that the Beatles ever did, man. I really, really love this. Yeah, tune. I love this tune too. And, and one other thing on that, I mean, Paul, I mean, my goodness, Trey, the guy is not even their guitarist. Yeah. And he's like, he just why, why don't I just come in and, uh, and lay this? is down and speaking of paul then we go into one of his best tunes in the uh, entire catalog of the beatles eleanor rigby written primarily by mccartney ranks 138 on the rolling stones list of 500 greatest songs of all time won the 66 grammy for best vocal performance and it doesn't have that standard pop backing does not one would expect it's actually the only beatles song where none of the beatles play an instrument use that next time you're at uh, the water cooler. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, though Lennon and Harrison did contribute some harmony vocals, it employs that classic string ensemble that we heard um, on Help with the tune yesterday. We had four violins, two violas, two cellos, all performing a score composed by who else? None other than George Martin. Which wouldn't have happened at Stacks, I was just right? about to say. <laughs> see, if we had Jim Stewart on this, I, I doubt that'd be uh, No, occurring. I don't think so. And uh, the theme, we had what on Taxman? We had talking about tax, kind of some mature stuff here. Yeah, and it has striking lyrics about loneliness, which Trey broke sharply with popular music conventions, both musically and lyrically, because what did we have at this time? And what were the Beatles popping off at this time? Love songs, right? That's, that's what it was man so now the teen girls now there's anything wrong with teen girls i i actually have a teen daughter nothing wrong with it but the teen girls are like tax man now we got eleanor rigby yeah what's where up with this? are the love songs <laughs> and it's not going to get any better with the next track form if that's what they're looking for yeah so we go harrison 
to McCartney. Now we're going to Lennon with I'm Only Sleeping. Golly, me and you both mm. love this song. One man. of my favorite Lennon tunes. It includes that backwards or back mass lead guitar part that we talked about, played by Harrison in a five-hour late-night recording session with Martin. Yeah, so George is in there with George. It's George and George. <laughs> Everyone else is gone. But this shows you how much Harrison was dedicated. It took him five hours to lay this down. Yeah, and Harrison really perfected that part with the tape running backwards so that when reversed, it would fit a dreamlike And boy, mood. does it. And obviously that affects, uh, or that goes with the lyrical content of the song, I'm Only Sleeping. One guitar was recorded with fuzz effects, the other without. And this marks the first time that such a technique had been used on a pop recording. Um, you have a yawn in there. Yeah, in, it's in, pretty cool. In the middle of the song, preceded by Lennon saying to McCartney, yawn, Paul. You got to really listen <laughs> for it, but it's in there right before that second bridge. And uh, we also have a vibe vibraphone which was the first time the beatles used it and again shows their experimentation with new sounds during these sessions you also had bear speeding and adt that adt was applied to Lennon's vocal because he sought to replicate what he told emmerich was a papery old man's voice i don't know what a papery old man's voice sounds like but it works because this song is just it is dreamy it's mm-hmm. just a i don't even know how to describe it yeah it definitely has that dreamlike quality to it and on top of it, that though it has moments where it raises a almost anxiety in a sense yeah, with that good... with that backwards guitar part especially uh, it's just such a contrast to the rest of the song it uh, wakes you up a little bit before Lennon uh, brings us back down in a sense so one of my favorite tunes on this oh, record oh, mine too and, and you know john was famous trey for for liking to sleep the boy liked to sleep that's he, right he also he's going to be so tired also <laughs> so, hey man i i appreciate I, that I sense, john. A, I sense a theme here now go to the four songs so i guess it's we're just running an order here we had harrison mccartney winning now harrison's up again already with his second song on this album love you too really jumps into that indian instrumentation such as sitar and tabla, which is a pair of Indian hand drums, using them for the first time on a Beatles recording. Following Harrison's introduction of sitar on A Course of Norwegian Wood in 65 on Rubber Soul, it was the first Beatles song to fully reflect the influence of that Indian classical music. Here's one of the big reasons why. It was made with minimal participation from anyone besides George. Instead, he created the track with Indian musicians, brought him right into Abbey Road. In its lyrical themes, it's partly a love song to Harrison's wife at the time, Patty Boyd, while also incorporating philosophical concepts inspired by his experimentation with LSD, which he is going to do from here on in for the next several albums. These are kind of going to be his themes. The song's change of meter was unprecedented in the Beatles' work and a characteristic that would be a ton on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I like this song okay. It's one of my least favorites on here, which is not a dig because I love every song on here. Yeah, I really enjoy the use of the sitar on here, especially that extended intro and the vocal effects that are on Harrison's voice really add to the kind of psychedelic. And the song really puts you in that Eastern kind of mindset, I think, as well. So I I thought uh, Harrison did a great job. I love the, I'll make love to you if you want me to. 
to it's a little hypnotic. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think I can't imagine, you know, popping this on in 1966. Obviously, you had some stuff on Norwegian Wood, but this is a whole nother level, man. To come home and pop this on and then this comes on and you're going, hey, man, what in the heck is this? And even though it, it is partly a love song, it surely doesn't sound like a love song. So those teen girls mm-hmm. who the first four songs are going, oh, no, <laughs> but never fear. Paul is here with one of your favorite songs of all time. So I'm going to let you mm-hmm. take the reins on this one. Here, oh. there, and everywhere. Mm-hmm. Go get it, Trey. Well, I'm not the only one who thinks this. Mojo Magazine ranked it the fourth in the list of the greatest songs of all time. McCartney said of this song that Brian Wilson's God Only Knows was his main inspiration here. And in May of 66, the day after Pet Sounds had been released in America, McCartney and Lennon actually attended a private listening party for Pet Sounds. Just a cool little tidbit. But going to the song itself, as you mentioned, Dad, this is one of my favorite songs. I know it's a fantastic song. Of all time, Um, McCartney, in keeping with the times of this record, had the double track vocals and was uh, used the bare speeding, resulting in a higher pitch at playback. And the recording is also noted for its layered backing vocals, which McCartney, Lennon, and Harrison spent three days attempting to perfect. Three days on backing. But this just shows you all the stuff we've already talked about in the middle of song five is why you couldn't play Mm. any of these songs in concert. You knew you weren't going to tour anymore, so you could actually step out and do these things. Yeah, and Lennon, a man that we both know is uh, <laughs> hard to please. and uh, Even on his own songs. Not easy to give out compliments, told McCartney that this was the best tune on Revolver, and even up to his death um, in that famous 1980 interview, described it as one of his favorite songs that the Beatles ever did. Paul has also said much of the same thing, calling it one of his favorites. Uh, he wrote it while waiting for John to get out of bed. See, it ties in, man. Hey, He's it, only sleeping. Uh, hey, good thing that uh, good thing John was a late sleeper. Who knows uh, how many songs we would have missed out on? If yeah, he, yeah, exactly. He was up and at him. Uh, Paul shows up to, to John's Kenwood Mansion for a revolver writing session, only to find John still in bed despite it being afternoon. So Paul said, "I just sat out by the pool on one of the sun chairs with my guitar and wrote it." John might have walked out at the end, helped with the last few words. When I sang it in the studio, I remember thinking, I'll sing it like Marianne Faithful, something no one would ever know. I didn't come across that in our in our YouTube review of this either. Mm. So can you imagine, Trey, just going out going, golly, man, this guy is not up. I guess I'll go sit out here by the pool. You know what? I guess I'll bang out a tune, and this is what you bang out, man. Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll save some of my thoughts on the song for our uh, hottest take I, I here. I figured you would. But uh, just one of the greatest songs that um, the Beatles ever put out, and, um, and it's and, only the fifth song on this record, man. <laughs> yeah, now we're going to come to a song that's one of their most famous songs mm-hmm. they ever put out, and I'll get to more of my thoughts on this song at the end as well, but... Ringo, our boy Ringo is finally up with Yellow Submarine. Now, this is what Paul and John did all the time. The song that they didn't care for so much, they would give them to George, and then eventually they'd start giving them to Ringo instead. So Paul and John wrote this. It went to number one on the British chart and was the highest selling single of 1966 in the UK, which blows my mind, but that's another story. In the US, it peaked at number two, as I talked about at the start, and it was the most successful Beatles song to feature Starr as the lead vocalist. Although intended as a nonsense song for children, it received various social and political interpretations at the time because that's what everybody did, right? What are they trying to say here? What are they veiling here? They weren't veiling anything, man. No, and this actually 
especially as we point again to the importance of George Martin on this. Oh, man. He had a lot of experience producing comedy records. Yeah, that's what he was really known for before yeah. he came in with the Beatles. So he really helped bring forward those, some of those zany sound effects to create that nautical atmosphere that the song has. Uh, the studio store cupboard was ransacked for special effects, which included, get ready, y'all, chains, a ship's bell, tap dancing mats, whistles, hooters, waves, a tin bath filled with water, a wind and thunderstorm machines, as well as a cash register, which is the same one later heard on Pink Floyd's song, Money. Which is from Dark Side of the Moon, which is our first album <laughs> we covered in the series for the Relistenables. So go back and look for that one in our library. Lennon blew through a straw into a pan of water to create a bubbling effect. McCarty and Lennon talked through 10 cans to create the sound of the captain's orders. And Ringo actually stepped outside the doors of the recording room and yelled like a sailor. Cut the cable, drop the cable, which was looped into the song afterwards, and Abbey Road employees twirled chains in a 10 bath to create water sound, which, I mean, when you hear all that and then you go listen to the song, you're like, oh, okay, that's where all this crazy stuff happens. I mean, basically, it tells of life on a sea voyage accompanied by friends. It becomes a famous movie, as we all know. But there's a story in here that Emmerich shared later on that... Uh, was quite interesting. He said Yellow Submarine almost killed John Lennon because John pressed Emmerich, as, as John was doing at this <laughs> time, right? He wanted to push the limits. He wanted uh, Emmerich to record him singing underwater after first having attempted to sing it while gargling. That, that's a total John idea, yeah, as, as we'll get to on uh, Tomorrow Never Knows, you got some that of his right. ideas. Well, Jeff Emmerich said, while George Martin worked at dissuading him, I began thinking of an alternative. Might we have John singing to a mic that was immersed in water? So a mic was wrapped, now this is still PG-13, ladies and gentlemen, in a condom for protection and dropped in a milk carton. The signal was distant and abandoned, but no one at the time was aware how lucky Lennon had been. Emmerich said it wasn't until many years later that I realized with horror that the microphone we were using was phantom power, which means that it was actually a live electrical object. In conjunction with the 240-volt system used in England, any of us, including John, could have easily been electrocuted, and I would have gone down <laughs> in history as the first recording engineer to kill a client in the studio. Can oh, you imagine man. that? But another thing that's cool, Trey, is there's a host of uncredited names singing backing vocals. Yeah, we have the Rolling Stones' Brian Jones. We have Donovan, Patty Boyd, and speaking of Marianne Faithful, she actually appeared on this with backing vocals, which uh, is pretty pretty neat. So there's actually there's a lot of Easter eggs on this tune. There, that there really is, and I'll, I'll tell you who didn't like this tune, though, Trey. <laughs> the Kings' Ray Davies, uh, he actually reviewed this record, and Brandon, this track in particular, as a load of rubbish, really, <laughs> which knowing Ray and kind of the ego he has, I mean, God bless the Kinks. I uh, really enjoy oh, that. I do too. But, uh, you know, that, that doesn't surprise me. He, uh, he had that to say about this. So, uh, yeah, just a, a lot of interesting perspective on this tune that you don't know unless you dig a little bit i mean the the whole thing about the the microphone i mean imagine the news headlines of that oh what my i goodness. have when oh it actually died in the studio my goodness you talk about being experimental i think for this song and i'm going to cover it more uh, in our ending thoughts but this song is obviously iconic it's a fun song it, people who aren't even beatles fans know this song it's fun to sing along with it's not a great song. Yeah, um, I definitely think uh, it could have been maybe, uh, you know, taken out and for rain, that would have been a cool little... Yeah, uh, well, let's not get in too much of that because I'm going to actually talk about that very thing at the end. But I know if you're listening to this right now, tons of you love the Yellow Submarine. You're like, these guys are crazy. Just 
Just hang with us now. I yeah, I it is I, I do enjoy it for the fact I do too. that I it, sing along with it. A lot of the, the kids' first Beatles songs they know is Yellow Submarine just because yeah, it your has sister that, loves it. Yeah. yeah, it has that sing sing along type of atmosphere and of course obviously the uh, the movie that uh, went along with it. So it, it is cool for that sense. Um but when you know the other songs on this record, yeah, it's, uh, it's just quite overshadowed. When, when you're trying to compare it, and this next song is a very underrated song for me because I know all about it because I know what it's about and that just like lends to how awesome it is she said she said written by john with assistance from george harrison on this one Lennon described it as quote an acidy song with lyrics inspired by actor peter fonda's comments during an lsd trip in august 1965 with members of the beatles and the birds so mm-hmm. instead of being he said he said he just changed it up a little bit to disguise it was about fonda so he called it <laughs> she said she said it's the last track recorder for revolver and it was the first one that john had brought to the band in almost two months it took nine hours to rehearse and record complete with overdubs making it the only song on Revolver to be made in a single session. Due to an argument over the song's musical arrangement Paul actually walked out of the studio kind of a <laughs> uh, sign of things to come huh? And did not contribute to the recording. Ringo's drumming is often included oh, among his fantastic. best performances. Yeah and the night in question was August 24 1965 when uh, they met up with Peter Fonda there. The Beatles had a one day break on their North American tour and they enjoyed a party with Fonda and the Birds in Beverly Hills. Fonda said in Rolling Stone that he it was a thoroughly tripped out atmosphere because they kept finding <laughs> girls hiding <laughs> under tables and so forth. One snuck into the pool room through a window while an acid fire Ringo was shooting pool with the wrong <laughs> end of the cue. And as a child, Fonda had nearly died of a gunshot wound, which he insisted on showing the Beatles, distressing George. I mean, and they told him to leave. Yeah, it's yeah, crazy. Well, to be a fly on the wall in that uh, would have been something special. Yeah, they were they were so tripped out. And, and Fonda kept telling him, I know what it feels like to be dead. And just, yeah, just freaking him out. Um, and for John to go, Kelly, man, I need one more song. You know what? I'm going to write about this. So, mm, what a way to end that. I mean, the A side is arguably, I think, the greatest side they ever uh, produced. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, and we're going to start off the B side with Good Day Sunshine, another McCartney offering. It was his attempt to emulate the loving spoonful. He sang the lead, played piano, accompanied by Ringo on drums, and then Paul went back in and just overdubbed the bass part. Lennon and Harrison add harmony vocals during the choruses, and George Martin jumped in and played the piano solo, Mm. recorded with the tape recorder running slower than usual, and thus in the release version, the solo sounds faster than it was actually played. Once again, George Martin jumping in with an innovative studio That's right. technique. Yeah, and we know how great Martin was uh, with messing with the piano from uh, In My Life, where they really sped up that piano solo. In regards to Good Day Sunshine, I think that uh, it's by far McCartney's weakest tune on here. Yeah, it's a um, fun tune. It's thought of retrospectively really well. It, it's kind of like Yellow Submarine in the sense that you hear it, and it's like, you just sing along, Good Day yeah. It's a fun song, brings a smile to your face. Exactly. I, I feel that it gets overshadowed by his other tunes here, but hey, they, they didn't ask me. But uh, we'll keep moving on to And Your Bird Can Sing, another one of my favorites. Yeah, here. John being sarcastic, imagine that. And uh, he later dismissed this track uh, as he 
was in many of his compositions, <laughs> referring it to as another of my throwaways, fancy paper around an empty <laughs> box. We have a cool little dual guitar melody played by George and Paul here. And there's a lot of controversy on what is this song about? Who is John addressing? Because he's addressing somebody. Some claim that he wrote the song in response to an official press release promoting a Frank Sinatra TV special, uh, Old Blue Eyes Firing a Shot, as a show for those who were, quote, tired of kid singers wearing mops of hair thick enough to hide a crate of melons, which mm. I guess is a 60s Bring type the of hate. Thing. But according to others, and this is what I believe 100%, Lennon wrote the song in response to Mick Jagger boasting about his pop star girlfriend, which was bird in English slang. Marianne Faithful, who you mentioned earlier, was on Yellow Submarine. And then the track before that, Paul said he tried to sing here, there, mm-hmm. and everywhere like Marianne Faithful. Guitar World Magazine ranked Harrison's playing on the song at 69 on its list of 100 greatest guitar solos. Uh, so that backs up all the guitar stuff you were talking about. But, you know... The Stones and the, and the Beatles, they got along really well. I mean, the Beatles gave them one of their songs. They were sitting there in the iconic uh, satellite broadcast That's where they right. sang All You Need Is Love. They were sitting on the floor where the Rolling Stones are. But they like to take shots at the Stones as well, both in song and just in their in their public comments. So I think it's funny that, uh, <laughs> that John just decides to sing and your bird can sing. Yeah, exactly. It adds a, uh, a little um, read between the lines type of thing. So and, he takes uh, a shot at Peter Fonda and then the next song he p- comes on here, he goes after, it's not really after Marianne, it's, it's really a shot at, at Mick. But uh, yeah, I, I found that interesting. Another fantastic tune, Lennon was on fire on this uh, entire record, I think. And uh, this is one of his more underrated tunes for yeah, some reason. I, I think they love the guitar playing on this, obviously. I thought Harrison was a, a shining star on this tune as well. And that takes us to a, a short and sweet song from Mr. McCartney here for no one really is about the end of a relationship. And uh, again, we have some love type of songs on this record, but not in the traditional sense. We, uh, cause here we're, we're talking about that end of the relationship, yeah. a lot more mature than a lot of the other work that they had released up to this point. It has a French horn solo, which is a uh, kind of unique. Yeah. Very. And um, Lennon said it was one of his favorites. So, Hey, John, John liking two songs. Yeah, no joke. Uh, McCartney sang and played the uh, clavichord, piano, and the bass guitar, while Ringo played drums, tambourine, and maracas. Lennon and Harrison did not contribute to the recording of this tune. Which you see a lot here on these Paul tunes. They're either singing harmony or they don't contribute at all. So that is also a sign of things to come. Yeah, and this is just a little bit over two minutes. I think it's one of the more heart-wrenching songs in their catalog. I agree. And uh, just very emotional in the sense of uh, really kind of pinning down those feelings one has whenever a relationship is uh, no more. I just think that, uh, again, this is another very underrated Paul tune. It it very much is. Because it uh, is overshadowed by some of his more famous work. Now, Trey, I'm going to tell you as we get to this next song, whether you're feeling bad, whether any of you out there listening is feeling bad, I have a recommendation of who you can call. (laughs) John Lennon wrote about this man, Dr. Robert. Mm, He'll give you what you need. John wrote it, although Paul said he co-wrote it, and this is something you're going to see uh, pretty much from here on in on a lot of their songs. Later on, one of them will claim they wrote it. The other one will say, no, I wrote a lot of it too. But John's lead, ADT'd, 
with each of the two slightly out of phase tracks split onto separate stereo channels. So it gives a crazy sound in the headphones, which is good because it supports the lyric about drug use. And then on the recording, the hard driving performance is interrupted by two bridge sections where over harmonian and chiming guitar chords, the group vocals suggest a choir praising the doctor for his services, which are not traditional doctor services. Uh, no, and we have a few different theories have circulated about who is Dr. Robert and what drugs did this man battle? Uh, McCartney described the meaning of the song, saying that there's some fellow in New York, we'd hear people say, you can get everything off him, any pills you want. He just kept New York high. That's what Dr. Robert is all about, just a pill doctor who sees you all right. Uh, in 1980, Lennon said the song was mainly about drugs and pills it was about myself and i was the one that carried all the pills on tour <laughs> john, so john was your john was your doc it was dr john <laughs> and, and you know this song when we did revolver on the youtube channel i got probably 25 comments it's about their dentist dr robert well <laughs> you just read the parts that no it's not that be, that's become a popular myth but they talk about exactly what it's about i love this song it just rings over in my head over and over in a very overlooked song on this album definitely probably one of the uh lower ones and on this record which just goes to show you though yeah. how strong the record is if dr robert's uh near uh, the bottom um but yeah john yet again showcasing how he was on fire and again showcasing that more mature uh subject matter writing about dr robert yeah, he's firing shots uh, at everyone on this thing <laughs> i uh I, I do enjoy that and then that transitions us to the last harrison tune the, his third one first time yeah, ever yeah i want to tell you really really enjoy this one and it definitely again pinpoints kind of that inspiration from the lsd (laughs) LSD, experimentation uh the lyrics address what he later termed as the avalanche of thoughts that are so hard to write down or say or transmit Uh, this recording marked the first time that mccartney played his bass guitar part after the band had completed the rhythm track for a song a technique that would later become commonplace in uh, later Beatles recordings. This tune... Um, yeah, and he did it a couple times on this album, but this was the first one recorded mm-hmm. where he did it, and then he went, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. Brian Wilson used that technique for the, the uh, Beach Boys a lot, and that's that's kind of where he borrowed the idea from. Yeah, and in regards to this song, I uh, like it more than Love You Too, and I do too, depending definitely. on the day, I might like it more than Tax Man, honestly. I might too. Um, it's uh, just... A very underrated song, I think. I know I've said that a lot, but in the whole Beatles catalog, uh, it, it definitely gets overlooked, you know, from some of a, the later Harrison work, like something and Here Comes the Sun oh, yeah, and whatnot. But uh, really, really love this tune. And it's just buried here as a track 12 or 14. Track 12, exactly. And then we're going to get into Got to Get You Into My Life by McCartney. Uh, he wrote it after he'd seen Stevie Wonder perform. So he, he wrote it as an homage to the Motown sound. And in that, you can tell because it's got colorful brass instrumentation. The lyrics suggest a psychedelic experience, which kind of actually goes along with most of this album. Later on, McCartney said it's actually an ode to pot. The brass was close mic'd in the bells of the instruments, then put through a limiter. Once again, Emmerich showing his magic. And then the song closes with fading vocals of McCartney much like the soul records at the time. This is a nice little piece on here, too, kind of buried in here. I just want to shout out, got to get you into my mm. life. Didn't, I love the horns that yeah, just come in right there. Again, a song that is short and um, just packs so much into it. And as you mentioned, another song where we uh, got to tip our cap to drugs right here, man. Um. Oh, man. Yeah. And <laughs> let me tell you something. We're to the final track 
Tomorrow Never Knows. I mentioned it was the first one they recorded, which is kind of weird to me because there's no way they could come close to topping the oddness of this. This is John's song. And I, I remember when we reviewed this album, I walked into your room when I was listening to it and said, dude, I have never heard anything like this. This was in 2019. This song was written in 1966. And I told you, I have never heard anything like this. That's how much this song Mm -hmm. holds up. I didn't even know what I thought about it at first, but it obviously marks a radical departure for the Beatles as a band fully embraced the potential of the recording studio without any consideration for being able to reproduce the results in concert. If there was ever a song that made that statement mm. true, Trey, it is Tomorrow Ever Never Knows. Oh, absolutely. It, as you mentioned, still just holds up so well all these decades crazy, later. But if you want to pinpoint one song on this record that encompasses all the uh, psychedelic yeah. uh, elements that they wanted to convey on this record, it would be Tomorrow Never Knows. And when writing the song, Lennon drew inspiration from his experiences with None other than LSD. And I would hope so when you write something like that. I don't know how you could just come with this with a sound mind. As well as the writings of Timothy Leary. And on the recording, the Beatles incorporated some of those musical elements that were unconventional in pop music. Uh, features that Indian inspired the modal backing of the tambura and the sitar drone. Had that bass guitar tape loops. Just a bunch of crazy stuff. You mentioned earlier how Lennon's vocal was fed through a Leslie speaker cabinet, which was normally used as a loudspeaker for a Hammond organ. The song has backwards guitar parts and effects, which mark the first time um, reverse sounds were really used in a pop recording. It is interesting to note, titles never appears nope. in the song's never. lyrics. He Lennon said that he wanted to capture the atmosphere of a Tibetan Buddhist ceremony. <laughs> He told Martin, now listen up, people, that the song should sound like it was being chanted by a thousand Tibetan monks with his vocal evoking the Dalai Lama singing from a mountain top. I wonder, what do you think the look was on on George Martin's face whenever Lennon told him that? Was he just stunned? She was probably like, I don't even know what you're talking about, I don't even know if we have anything in the closet uh, that we can pull out to to get what you want on this one, John, but we'll do our best. So his voice is double-tracked on the first three verses of the song. The effect of the Leslie cabinet can be heard after the backwards guitar solo. So that's where you look for that. By disabling the erase head of a tape recorder and then spooling a continuous loop of tape through the machine while recording, the tape would constantly overdub itself, creating a saturation effect, a technique also used in music concrete. So those are some of the things, guys, that you're, mm-hmm. you're probably not getting at stacks. It was the most experimental no. and psychedelic track on Revolver. I don't really have to tell you this, right? If you've heard this, you are not going to uh, dispute that. But in both its structure and production, it was not a song that could be easily sung by a rock group live, I would say, or at all, Mm-mm. as the special effects and tape manipulation were integral to the tune, could not be recreated on stage. It's kind no. of a one-time thing. You couldn't yeah. recreate it in the studio again. But what's interesting on this is the sound sampling and tape manipulation on the song was thought to have had a profound effect on everyone from Jimi Hendrix to Jay-Z. Talk about a, a wide range of uh, genres and eras there. And again, just showcases how influential this record was on uh, people that may not even know it. And it, it. Yeah, they might even know that that's what they are actually uh, uh, being inspired from because they're being inspired by someone else. But that yeah. person was inspired <laughs> by someone who was inspired by this. But Trey, tell us the last part of this crazy thing of what 
Mr. Lennon first proposed. Yeah, so John suggested that he be suspended from a rope in the middle of the studio ceiling, putting a mic in the middle of the floor, giving him a push, and letting him sing as he went around and around. <laughs> so upside down, spinning And around. then there is a, a photo. That's where the, that's where the uh, Wesley speaker came Yeah, in. and there is a photo of him, like, hanging upside down. Um, I put it on our Top 100 uh, Beatles song list for this song. Uh, you can just search like John Lennon tomorrow never knows upside down and it'll uh, it'll pop up <laughs> for you and then there's uh you know those man birds you hear which are the product of McCartney cutting up pieces of tape he'd made that featured distorted guitars and bass and wine glasses ringing and then working in the studio on five tape machines and then pulling the faders yeah i pulled that way out from the research cuz mm. we didn't have that on the revolver youtube either so i was really trying to pull every little bit i could because if you're you're spending the time with us here i want you to get some stuff that you may not have known and hopefully you have this song trey it stands up i can't imagine it ever not standing up because it is so unique oh absolutely just what what a tremendous closer and uh, as i mentioned just really encompasses all the uh kind of themes of this record into a nice uh nice little bow here and uh i guess that moves us to our categories it does trace the first one up what's age the best i'll go first because we just talked about it for me tomorrow never knows mm, I, I wrote that down too it's so still I'll let revolutionary you and in general the entire album though sounds fresh i don't put any of these songs on and go well, that was really 1966. You know, we do that a lot on our channel. We, we mm-hmm. review a lot of classic albums, and some of them, you're like, yeah, that really sounds like 1972. You can tell it's from that period. You can't really tell for me what period this is from. This whole album is unique, but obviously Tomorrow Never Knows is something that I never heard from them again. Not their best song, but never anything quite as wild as that. No, I totally agree with you, and uh, I, I don't have too much to add. I, I wrote down Tomorrow Never Knows as well. Still sounds out of this world to this day, and uh, now we'll go to what aged the worst. Um, for me, it was really hard to come up with me anything, um, honestly, so I uh, really won't spend much time on that. And I said nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is, I'm not going to just create something just for a talking point, although some shows will. I'm not on this one. I I don't imagine there'll be too many albums where I don't have something, but, but yes, yeah, same here. And so then that'll move us to uh, the peak time uh, on this record. I got to go. I'm, I know I'm taking a long stretch here, but uh, the first five songs on this, I would put up uh, against pretty much any five songs that they, they, they put out in a row. I, you start with Taxman, Eleanor Rigby, I'm Only Sleeping, Love You Too, Here, There, and Everywhere. Gives you two George songs, rather, uh, two McCartney songs, and then one of John's best songs. What a five-song run to start off this record. Just wonderful uh, track listing all the way around here, I think. Yeah, for me, the peak time on the album, for me, it's a broken record, no pun intended. Uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. And the reason why is because I think more than anything on this album, there were several things that let people know that, hey, look, we're not the same mop tops. Rubber Soul started to do that, but you're not going to get your normal music here. But this, this not only cracked the mold, it shattered it everywhere. You hear this song and Tomorrow Never Knows and goes, well, those Beatles of I Saw Her Standing There, is, are, they're gone. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that was very important. And the honorable mention for me is part of what you had, but Eleanor Rigby into mm-hmm. I'm Only Sleeping. I that, like that. That little two-song run there for me is just a a fantastic dichotomy of McCartney and Lennon, you know, functioning at some of their peaks, peak time of career. So this is a question we ask on every album. Is this the peak 
of the Beatles, and I say yes. I say the peak started with Rubber Soul, but this, for me personally, is their peak now. I guarantee you Sgt. Peppers is fantastic. Abbey Road's fantastic. But for me, yes, this is the peak time of their career. Man, I, uh, I, I, I'd like to argue with you, but I would agree with well, that well, as well. Well, you mentioned early um, on, Trey, at the start, that you thought they were all four peaking at the same time. Yeah, and I, I think that this just really uh, encompasses in 34 minutes, okay, everybody's firing all cylinders. We don't have uh, too many of the fractures that would come on later, yet um, we're at the point where they are obviously experimenting, kind of hitting that sweet spot there where uh, everybody's just uh, right on their groove, man. McCartney and Lennon on that even playing field Harrison putting in three great efforts Ringo's drumming you could argue is a kind of at the top of his game plus he gets to throw in yellow submarine yeah his most famous tune so I I think this is the group's peak now we get into biggest what if so with the Beatles this category is always going to be super easy for me. I'm curious if you have what I have. What do you have for the biggest what if? Well, I uh, I kind of mentioned it earlier, and we already discussed it, but the whole what if they uh, would have recorded this in the United States, how would that have um, impacted their relationship with George Martin in the future? How would the recording process have gone? They obviously wouldn't have had all the crazy technology no i would say what 75 percent of the songs we were mentioning either either emmerich or george martin Mm -hmm. and then adt which townsend was in there too so uh that's mine i um also think yours is good too because i know kind of where you're uh heading yeah i actually assumed you had what i had but you had actually something better but for me it it, this is going to come up all the time it's going to come up on our peppers re-listenable too the single so what if day tripper and rain were put on this album instead of a couple of the weaker Mm. track. So for me, it's hard to pick those weaker tracks. I would probably knock out Love You Too, even though I I like that song, The Harrison Offering. (sighs) I don't know, man. Dr. Robert? I don't know what else I'd knock. I mean, I had a hard time. Then I'm like, maybe I'll just make it 16 (laughs) songs. I don't know. It wasn't real obvious what to replace. It's more obvious for me when we get to the Peppers re-listenable what to replace. But uh, what would you have replaced if you put Day Tripper and Rain on here? I probably would have taken out Good Day Sunshine. Um, I'm not a huge fan of that song. I mean, I like it, but just in comparison. And then if you're putting Rain in there, then the, we're, we're taking off a John song. And then, yeah, I guess I would go with Dr. Robert probably as well um, if I had to pick the weakest John song to take off. All right, now we get to our hottest take. And Trey, I got a hot take on here. I sort of mentioned it earlier. Yellow Submarine is the worst song on this album. I don't even think it's close. I think Love You Too you could throw in there. I don't think either song is bad at all, so please understand. It's 14 really good to great songs. But for me, even though this is, like, to a common fan, the most popular and known song on this album is Yellow Submarine, which is mind-boggling, but it is. But for me, it's the worst song on this album, Trey. Convince me it's not. Uh, I'm not going to because it, <laughs> I, I think it definitely is. I think among Beatles fans, I, I don't think you'll have too much uh, blowback on that. Uh, for it's those, still a fun song. I'm not yeah, saying I don't like it. For those that, but if you say that, yeah, I guess to more uh, casual fans, they'll probably be like, "What? What in the world? Are you, are you kidding me, man?" Um, <laughs> I uh, I will push back a little on "Love You Too." I know you you still enjoy the song, um, but I think that it's pretty darn underrated and. Um, 
you know, I, I'm still going on the Good Day Sunshine train that that's uh, the next worst song after uh, Yellow yeah, Submarine. Yeah, I know you don't really care for that. I like that one more than you do. Um, but. And uh, for my hottest take, I'm, uh, I'm, I came in on uh, Dark Side with something related to the cover, and I'm, I'm coming in with a cover hot take here, too. Um, I actually got a couple, but I'll start with the, the cover hot take. I think this is their coolest cover overall. Wow. Not their most iconic. Of course. Um, obviously, Abbey Road and Sgt. Peppers are going to be their two most iconic. But I think this is their coolest cover. I think Klaus Vorman really outdid himself. Yeah, and and if you just glance at that cover, I think you make a great point. Like, you have to sit there and really stare Mm -hmm. at it and study it because there's so many intricacies that you don't see it on first glance. You're just like, what's this dude talking about? Go look and stare at it. And just kind of the psychedelic blender of all their hair and just all the images popping out and the black and white nature of it, the fact that George is the only one that has, like, really realistic eyes and it it is a little uh even a little creepy yeah. at certain <laughs> times in a sense i i think they captured everything um they wanted to um, with the the music inside with that cover it's just my personal favorite and also i think uh here there and everywhere is the uh greatest thing mccartney ever did or Ooh. produced um so <laughs> let it be in hey jude and yesterday huh oh yeah def- i'm not saying you're wrong definitely uh i, I think that's uh the best best uh Best thing Paul ever put to paper, and that's uh, that's a hot take. So that that is my hot take. I kind of went in with a softball with the cover. You yeah, know, you did. And then I I'm, I'm bringing it in here. But now to best supporting role. What do you what do you got on this? Well, I think it's been a broken record once again. No pun intended. It's the studio crew first and mm-hmm. foremost. It's George Martin. Then it's Jeff Emmerich, and then it's Ken Townsend because that ADT is all over it. If those three guys weren't involved in this album, I don't think this album sounds anything like no. it does. No, I, I'm with you 100%. I had, the, uh, I had the recording crew as well. Because you can direct somebody. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. sure the Beatles would have said, this is what we want, because they directed them on what they wanted. But, I mean, I can direct you, Trey, that I would like to go to the moon. It doesn't mean you're going to go make it happen for me, right? <laughs> no, exactly. Like, you need some cool, guidance, dude. man. Yeah. So they had to actually create these things. Yeah, I mean, if you look just at Martin himself, he scored the Eleanor Rigby Orchestra. He set that wacky atmosphere for Yellow Submarine, and he also uh, did the piano for Good Day Sunshine, and that's just kind of uh, the tip of the iceberg, spent so to five speak. hours with, with, with Harrison. With Harrison yeah, that's on right. Sleeping's guitar. I mean, that's just all the stuff. And then I have an honorable mention just in that George Harrison gets yeah. three songs. And the reason why I got three songs is because what we mentioned throughout the review, Lennon productivity we had the three winning songs early on that they chose for yesterday and today but then john kind of went by the wayside and didn't really produce anything for quite a while so george gets his three songs tax man love you too and i want to tell you i don't think all three are fantastic songs but they're pretty good songs but he at least gets elevated up a little bit yeah exactly i'm uh, i'm with you there and now to our last category too early too late or just right i got just right on this i think that the uh, studio innovations really set the groundwork for both the Beatles and other mainstream artists to experiment and push rock music boundaries here in the future. Um, uh, Pet Sounds came out this year as well, which, uh, of course, did uh, a lot of innovations and in production techniques itself. So I think the public was... Um, you know, Spoiled, used, man. <laughs> used to, or at least ready to hear this type of stuff. If, if this came out in 1960, you know, three, it'd be too early, no, it'd be too uh, early. but yeah. uh, I, I think this was just right. Yeah, it absolutely was just right. And for me, this is a perfect album. I scored this a 10 on our YouTube review 
And for me, this is the best album I've ever heard. Start to finish, 14 songs, 34 minutes. Even the songs that I, I didn't like as much, like The mm-hmm. Yellow Submarine uh, and Love You Too, I still really, really like. For me, it's just right because it is the perfect album in my eyes. Oh, I, I love it, man. I don't, I don't know if I'd say it's um, the best album I've ever heard, but it's definitely in the running there. This is the, the album I spend more than any other from the Beatles. Yeah, it's the one it's, I return to. It's a quick, it's just a quick journey, man. Oh yeah. It's a, it just so, uh, so many wonderful tunes that you just grow to love more and more as you listen to them. And I, I do think the aspect that there's, you know, uh, it's just short and sweet. Most songs are just over two minutes. That adds a little bit to the the, the charm. It keeps you on the edge of your seat uh, waiting for what's going to happen next. So. It, exactly. And I'll tell you what, Trey, thank you so much for joining me on this and bringing your Beatles knowledge. Oh, well, as always, appreciate you having me, man. Really, really enjoy talking about Revolver and um, look forward to doing uh, more of these, uh, especially on the Beatles in the future. Yeah, we got a lot of Beatles content coming up. It's our favorite subject here at Reactions to the Classics, both on our YouTube channel and on this podcast. Coming up very soon, we'll have the Sergeant Pepper's re-listenable. And we'll also have a special podcast for the Let It Be 50th anniversary. Those are just a few things coming up. Well, everybody, that's going to do it for another edition of the Reactions to the Classics Music Podcast. As always, we appreciate you stopping by. When you get an opportunity, hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. Also, go by Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. That'll help us out so much. Check out our YouTube channel. If you like this podcast, you're going to love that channel. There's something there for everyone. Hit us up on Instagram. And as always, if you want to reach me, Sean, personally, hit me up at rttcyt at gmail.com. I promise to answer each and every one of those. We'll be dropping new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Until then, stay safe, my friends.